Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. This is the Overthinking It book club, and we are reading Ender's Game. This is the final installment in our six-part series. Uh, We're talking about chapter 15 and about the whole book. Uh, I'm Matt Rather. With me is the world's foremost expert on Ender's Game, Ben Adams. Welcome back, Ben. Hey Matt, it's been uh, it's been a fun ride so far. It's been it's been an honor serving with you, sir. <laughs> you too. Just uh, you know, freeze your legs in a kneeling position and fire down. Um, so uh, we're going to skip the normal uh, the normal pattern that we've been following of highlighting comments from the forums. Uh, that's not to say there aren't good discussions going on on the forums. There are, but. Uh, we just have so much to get through because we're going to talk about chapter 15, which is a, a uh, really interesting little coda after the, the sort of main climax of the book, which, you know, we, we sort of talked about whether it really was the main climax of the book or, or how it functioned in the last episode. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the whole book. So with that, we're going to skip the forums. I encourage you to go to the forums, though, uh, especially now to the whole book forum to talk about your impressions of Ender's Game, having read the uh, having read the whole thing now, and uh, also to make suggestions in the whole book forum for the next Overthinking It book club. We may uh, wait a few weeks before we uh, uh, do the next one, and I'm not even sure it'll be Ben and me doing it, but uh, there will be another one because this has been so much fun, uh, and uh, people seem to have liked it. So uh, make your suggestions there for, for uh, what we're going to do, um, whether it's similar or completely 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 different uh completely off the wall from uh what we've been doing so far okay well then let's uh jump right in ben do you want to uh uh give us one of your patented expert plot summaries of what happens in chapter 15 sure uh, we, we need a few weeks to do the next book if for no other reason than i i need that time to become the world's expert in some other book <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't think I qualify in any other category. But yeah, so this is chapter 15. Uh, of course, this is the end of the book, and there's a lot going on in this chapter. So I'll just quickly kind of go through the major plot points. We, we find out that Graf was tried but was uh, exonerated for the deaths of Bones, Owen Stilson. And so now he's going to become the Minister of Colonization, uh, responsible for sending out uh, ships to all the new, the new colonies we're going to make on the, the dead bugger worlds. Uh, Ender hasn't been allowed back on Earth yet, and Val comes up to Eros, where Ender is still still stuck, and tells him that he, he's not going to be allowed to go back to Earth, that because all the countries are too afraid of, of his military power and the kind of political power he might wield, that nobody wants him back. And so his only option, really, is for her and him to go together to one of the new colonies, where, where Ender becomes the governor of, of the new colony. And uh, Valentine, at this point, has taken the Demosthenes mantle and has begun writing histories of the, of the Formic Wars. And so they're at the new colony, and Ender goes out to scout after they've been there for a few years to find out where they can plant the new colony. And while they're doing this, he discovers what is the, the giant's body from the fantasy game, a sculpted version of the fantasy game on this world. So he follows the path, and he eventually finds the at the end of the world where he he previously saw the the mirror with his with Peter's face in it. He finds the cocoon of the last hive queen, and he, we 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 find out through the through the queen kind of communicating with Ender psychically that they weren't planning on coming back. That after the second invasion of humanity, they realized that we were living thinking beings and they they didn't they didn't know they were murdering originally and so now they, they weren't planning on coming back and so ender decides that he's going to tell their story and, and spend the rest of his life finding a place for them to be reborn and he writes this down and signs it the speaker for the dead and eventually it accompanies with a similar story about peter and his life and then val and ender uh fly from world to world looking for a place to put the queen I, I understand they. Bizarre. I understand they looked a long time, a long, long time. There, are, there are a couple moments in uh, 
in the book where um, the time the the time perspective jumps a little bit, or you get information that is not strictly speaking uh, available to Ender, or that is not really close to Ender, where the the uh, the narrator jumps away, uh, whereas nor- uh, normally in this book the the narrator is close to Ender. Um, one of them is. Uh, uh, his last day in battle school, the narrator says, uh, it was going to be his last day in battle school, though he didn't know it yet. And it's, you know, it's a literary device for making you pay attention or for, for highlighting, uh, highlighting what's coming. Since we know that, that OSC had in mind Speaker for the Dead and that, that, that was really where he was going and that um, Ender's Game was really, at least uh, so the story goes, uh, mostly a setup for that to do the uh, to do the things that he was really interested in in that later book. Um, this is this is this functions similarly as a sort of literary device, right? He looked a long time, uh, jumps jumps way 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 ahead uh, in the perspective of the narrator because it, it presumes that, that uh, because it, it implies rather that, uh, eventually he finds a place, right. That, uh, you know, that he can like, I, what is it? It's a very easy hive queen, right? It's just add water. Right. I don't know. Yeah, It's not, not too complicated. It sounds like uh, physically speaking, but of course the, the political implications are difficult. Store, Finding the right. place to put the hive queen is the difficult part. Store in a cool, dark place, just add water. You know, and uh, you have a new bugger colony in uh, you know six months. Um, it's it's, it's kind of like a gremlin. You just add water and you get your gremlins. <laughs> or I was thinking of like sending away for sea monkeys or something like that, right? <laughs> and you get them in a, in the dried out uh, the dried out state. So this is, I mean, it's the book ends. Uh, this novel ends kind of lobbing one up for the next book to hit, right? Right. I mean, I think in, in, a, in a movie format, most people would like roll their eyes and be like, oh, they're just setting this up for the obvious sequel. Oh, man. <laughs> but um, I think it works here. Uh, sure. Why, uh, can you unpack that a little bit? Sure. So, I mean, I guess what I'm talking about is there are, you know, particularly common in, I'm trying to think of a good example, uh, but you, you'll have a blockbuster where the last five minutes of the movie just exists to set up the conflict for the next movie so that it it builds tension for the sequel or, or whatever the case Yeah, of course. Be. Sure, sure. Um, whereas this feels less crassly commercial. Uh, it feels, <laughs> feels a little more organic to the story that, um, that this whole story has been about building this character Ender so that he can go do interesting things in the next book. Right. The, um, the, it's funny that the, it feels like chapter 15 takes a turn, uh, not an abrupt turn. It feels like it's earned, but it takes a turn from the kind of action sci-fi uh, genre into the more kind of fantasy or mythic legendary genre with psychic communication and the sort of large-scale ethical questions of, you know, I, I don't know, the, the idea of like holding the whole species in a palm of your hand, it, it seems almost a kind of virgin into the area of magic, though I understand it's, it's uh, you know, all technologically explained within the confines of the book. And this, this also, like, you can imagine, I don't know, a, the, the Morgan Freeman voiceover right at the end. He looked <laughs> a long time. I can't get my voice that low. But, uh, you know, that, that this, he looked a long time, the, almost the kind of invocation of long time, long stretches of time, belongs to that kind of epic fantasy or kind of e- epic legendary mode that we sort of we, uh, veer into here in the last chapter. I, I, I kind of keyed in on two words you said there, epic and mythic, which I, I think is exactly right. Not just in the the content, but to some extent the tone and the level of detail. Most of the book has been relatively detailed. We we got a lot of details about when they ate, when they showered, uh, relatively mundane details about how Ender lived his day-to-day life. Whereas this is much more, it almost reads like you know Old Testament or New Testament where it's, and then Ender went to the planet. And when he got to the planet, lo, he found the bugs. <laughs> you know, alighting over massive amounts of detail here because it's just simply not, not the story that we're interested in telling at this point is the details of how Ender governed this colony, except for in very broad strokes about how wise a leader he was. Except, yeah, he was a very wise leader because, you know, wartime generalship always translates well into peacetime governance. I mean, history has taught us that time and time again. Of course. Um, so, uh, 
Okay, so so a number of ways we could go uh, at this point. I don't know what what do you uh, what do you think? Ender 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 ends ends <laughs> the formic wars. Oh, and by the way, digression within my digression. Um, we don't know they're called the formics at this point, right? I don't think so. Actually, I'm probably using that. I guess not anachronistically, but out, outside what would uh, outside the scope of the book. But that's that's what yeah. they're called. You know, in the the novels, the the co-written novels that are coming out now uh, are called like the Formic War series or some something like that. I, I think the term might appear somewhere in this book. I could be wrong, but I think it does appear in at least one place. Um, so what I. I don't know the origin of the term. I mean, it's not strictly speaking analysis of this book, but uh, can you fill in a little bit how how they come to be called the formics or how we know they're called that? I mean, that's, I guess, what we call them because they don't call themselves anything. They just kind of meep meep with their antennas and and, uh, don't need to call anything anything. My my understanding, I think bugger is the kind of derogatory slash casual term, whereas formic is the, is the technical name for them. And I, I think see. later, after the, after the Hive Queen has been widely published and people have started sympathizing with the buggers, um, it becomes the kind of acceptable term. It's the, the bugger is the politically incorrect term for <laughs> the alien menace. Yeah. The speaker uh, for the dead is soft on buggers. Exactly. You know. Um, so he ends he ends uh, uh, the book as as kind of a cowboy, right? He is n- kind of not allowed to come back to Earth. Everyone's scared of him. The society relies on the actions that that he's taken, but those actions uh, preclude him from rejoining the society, which is a, uh, a, a sort of a very American kind of frontier myth, and is the the theme of a lot of westerns. Back to like my darling Clementine, directed by John Ford, where uh, you know Wyatt Earp, uh, the camera stays in the town and watches Wyatt Earp ride away. We stay in the town with the woman who is the the representative of sort of civilization and orderliness uh, and kindness, and Wyatt Earp, who you know shoots people and stuff and does all the bad things that you can't have in a civilization. Uh, he rides off, and so here Ender rides off. We we sort of stay with him as he as he flies off uh, into the sunset or into the uh, into the setting of a new sun, right at relativistic speeds, so that uh, d- the world moves on for decades and decades, and yet he he ages just a minute. Um, you know, I don't know why why is it important. This was one of your study questions, and I'm curious what you thought about it as you were writing it. Why do you think it's important that he quite literally can't go home again or or is disallowed from going home again? So there's kind of two things that stand out to me there. The first is from a, a storytelling standpoint. I feel like this is I don't know if it's common to the fantasy genre, but it immediately makes me think of Lord of the Rings that the hobbits even though they physically go home, they never really go home again, both from the standpoint of the, the massive changes that have happened in the Shire in their absence. And for Frodo in particular, the, the, just the trauma of having been the ring bearer means that home is not home anymore when he gets back. And I feel like this is a relatively common trope in the fantasy genre that you go on this grand quest. And even though you accomplish your mission to save your home, because you've changed your home, you, you've lost your home in the process, despite saving it from its existence, you've lost it in a, in a personal sense. And I, I feel like that's definitely the case with Ender. Even if he physically went back to Earth, he would never truly be at home because he would constantly be a political pawn or, you know, he would either have to be, some of the later books get into this, but he would either have been killed by a rival faction or have had to have been a general again. In, in one of the factions in the wars that, that happened after uh, the Barger Wars. Yeah, the Earth. Uh, but the, the second... Yeah. The the second thing that jumps out to me, and this this might just be my own personal view, but at the the how it talks what this has to say about the civil military divide, the idea that we send someone like Ender off to go fight our wars, uh, but then as you said, there's no place for him in society. Um there, there's a different sequel to Ender's Game where it, it's Ender's Game First Blood, where where Ender, <laughs> you know, is being harassed as he goes and ends up in the woods fighting, uh, you know, fighting the sheriffs that, that hate the, the soldiers that have come back from this war. I mean, it's, it's commenting on the same thing, that there's, 
the requirement that we have people ready to do violence, but our, there is, it's difficult to find a place for those people in our society. There's a, there's a quote that stands out for me. It's on page 308 of my paperback. Um, uh, it was plain to him now that they would not bring him back at all, that he was much more useful as a name and a story than he would ever be as an inconvenient flesh and blood person. And if we're looking at the politics of today, I feel like that, that that's comes up in the discourse of veterans returning home, that it's much easier to hang a yellow ribbon on your car and talk about heroes than it is to figure out how you're going to provide people PTSD treatment and VA and, you know, cut through the red tape at the VA. Yeah, sure. Med- medical treatment if necessary. And, and yeah, and all, all of this stuff. Um, it's, it's much easier to, to, to incorporate people like that. And, and I, it's interesting. Let's stick a pin in what I mean by people like that, because I think <laughs> it's, it's not just military. I, I think there are, I think there are classes of people that become, uh, narratively useful for a society. Do you know what yes, I? Yeah, that, that, you, you, you go on because that's exactly what I, what I'm saying, and, and it's not unique to the military. So yeah, go on. But it's but it's, I, gosh, that's the the military is the big example, um, the big example that's that's jumping out at me, and I'm sort of I'm sort of wondering as I talk what the what the uh, criterion. Uh, is for becoming sort of narratively useful. I actually here's here's another one. Like uh, before in the um, in the days of of George Herbert Walker Bush, there was a lot of talk, and there was this term that was popularized, this pejorative term that that actually strikes me as very offensive, which was welfare queens. And whatever mm. whatever your um, politics are, you, you know, this was a term that people used. And and it really got into the culture. Uh, you know, I, I was pretty young at the time, but I was aware of this. And it was, it was, it didn't have to do with any, any individual person. It had to do with a story that the culture wanted to tell itself about itself, right? Um, I, oh, God, I'm trying to think of more. Like, uh, the so one that comes to mind is uh, survivors of diseases. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah. In, in the sense, I, I've often you, you often hear stories about like people that are like recovering from a disease and they move on. It's just like not a huge part of their life, and they'll like get hassled by like some charity because they're not willing to like do the walk, do the walkathon as a survivor. Sure. And, and it, it become it, they become instrumentally useful because they're a survivor, as opposed to actually giving them the humanity of saying, okay, this isn't you're, you're, you don't want to let this define the rest of your life so so move on right this ain't, it's this much ain't more your, about this ain't your bag yeah absolutely what you're saying it's much more about um i don't know what were you going to say i'm sorry i interrupted you oh no no go, go on that, 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 i think that fits in the same category it's much more it's, it's much more about sort of promulgating a uh, a sort of narrative that's useful you know that's socially useful at the time whether you know whether it's a a discourse about social entitlements like welfare whether it's a discourse about you know research and uh uh funding for diseases whether it's a discourse about geopolitics and the use of violence and sort of international uh healing and and uh you know healing the 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 problems and and divides of of a war um these things are these things are um uh, you know i was also thinking entrepreneurs right <laughs> like that uh in the t- in the tech space where i uh, d- uh work from time to time right there's this this kind of glorified kind of class of people who are entrepreneurs and uh re- and it it just it's a narrative category rather than the the individual ups and downs of any any useful uh, any individual person which can you know everybody's experience is different of course but then it's also like these things happen in fits and starts right they don't happen in well-organized kind of triumphalist uh story arcs and so whenever whenever you want to make a person into a story arc and kind of bend the meaning of their experience into the 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 uh, uh into your own narrative it it almost 
it almost means that you can't uh, deal with their own individuality, with their own subjectivity, with their own agency, because those things are always life being life. Those things are always messy and sometimes kind of contradictory and sometimes kind of uh, uh, difficult to reconcile. Um, and uh, and you can't do it. So that's so. Ender, uh, long story short, <laughs> too late. <laughs> uh, becomes becomes sort of one of these one of these people. I mean, he he's part of the general class of sort of military. But uh, you know, Graf can go home, right? And and right. kind of be subjected to uh, the civilian justice system and come out okay, and then go on to go on to his next job. Ender is, I think, a special case among the special cases. He, he can't, can't go home, and there would be no way of integrating, uh, integrating this perspective into, um, into people's experience. It would be like the second coming or something like that, you know, like it would be so disruptive to, uh, it would be so disruptive to, uh, establish systems of, of, you know, of sort of meaning and understanding that it, it would not be possible uh, to integrate. I, I think that's right. The, you get the sense that society needs Ender to ride off into the sunset for at least, you know, rel- for, from a relativistic standpoint, for at least a few decades. You know, <laughs> it, it'd just be, a, you know, because he's become at this point such a hero on Earth, he literally saved the world. There, there's just no way of handling that if Ender gets caught you know, in college with a bong. Like, there's just no way that, like, Earth could handle this at this point, letting, you know, letting a hero fall that much. And But the only way, because humans are human, the only way to prevent the hero from being destroyed is just, you know, exit stage left. Yeah, it's get rid... Right, exactly. Get rid of the... Get rid of the hero. Okay, well, this is... I mean, this is really... This is really interesting. So, um... So, what, what do you... What do you make of, um... What do you make of, of Valentine's uh, uh, retort to Ender when he, he says um, that uh, she's just trying to, to control him uh, like everybody else by taking him away to a colony world? She says, welcome to the human race. Nobody controls his own life, Ender. The best you can do is choose to fill the roles given to you by good people, by people who love you. Uh, wh- this, is an interesting, this is an interesting point of view. Uh, of human existence because it's it's more or less um, because it kind of shuffles agency one or two places down the chain right it's not that I decide w- what I do it's that it's that my decision has to do with picking among uh, picking among the sort of the predetermined roles um, offered me right like and and did ender really ha- have a choice one one way of um, talking about the ethics of of what he ends up doing is to talk about his his level of agency right like in in all of it he was he was manipulated and sort of forced sort of strong-armed and and kind of destined born bred even to uh uh to do the things that he ends up doing um you know what where where are our choices i don't know what do you what do you make of this i think this this might be a little this this as an existential uh <laughs> uh position might be just ad hoc to this particular conversation and not not have like larger uh implications for the book but we have kind of brought up the idea of of agency and and of uh the kind of um ethical uh importance of choice so i don't know any anything that interests you here i highlighted the same passage i think it's an interesting passage i in the context that it is i my i interpret that as valentine telling ender basically that he he hasn't controlled his life up to this point, and he can't expect to f- ever fully gain control of his destiny. So I think she's more talking to him prospectively, as in what he what he needs to do. Like, all this bad stuff has happened, you need to look forward, and you need to accept that. I, I kind of read this as everybody's got a boss. You know, n- nobody, <laughs> nobody is a truly a loner, nobody truly... The, the whole idea of somebody just being a uh, complete iconoclast that cuts their own path no matter what anybody says doesn't really exist. That the best you can do is is pick a boss that gives you a mission that uh, uh, that you support. And maybe, maybe that's being too generous, but I, I see this as a little... I don't think she's saying that he has had that level of control up to this point. 
but that he needs to kind of embrace that level of control moving forward. Yeah. Um, so uh, Ender is the governor of the world. Uh, Ender finds the giant's, uh, the giant's corpse uh, or the giant's skeleton. Ender goes to the end of the world. Ender uh, picks up a pen um, and, uh, and he writes. And, and then he writes, he writes uh, Peter's story as well. I don't know. I, I guess uh, some of the <laughs> Ender's world uh, or Ender's uh, expanded universe Right uh, materials sort of take up what happens with Peter and and that stuff, right? Right. I guess I can do a quick outline for for people that are interested in the sequels of because there's there's a couple different branches of, of sequels and I'll just do the kind of two main ones. So there's the immediate sequel, which was written a year after this one, Speaker for the Dead, and there's actually a trilogy of books, and those take place. I think they pick up three thousand years uh, by Earth time after the the end of Ender's Game. And that's where Ender, it picks up back with Ender. He's been flying relativistically so much that he's only like maybe 30 at the time of the books. And it, they've, humanity has found a new world with a new species of aliens, but they're, they're very primitive. They don't have any modern technology. And so it's about our interactions with those aliens and Ender's quest to find a place for the, for the Hive Queen. And there's a, there's a trilogy of books about that. And then kind of, Aside of that, parallel of that, there's the Shadow series, which starts with Ender's Shadow, which is about Bean and his experience through Battle School. And then there's a trilogy of books, which is back on Earth, and it's about all the different wars that take place after after Ender's game and that allow Peter to eventually rise to power as the head. So it's kind of Pete, it's Bean's story, ultimately, uh, but it's about Peter taking power. And so that's kind of the two the, the two main branches, depending on on your poison. There's also there's a uh, there's a helpful chart in the Wikipedia article <laughs> yes. for Ender's Game that where you can see all the uh, all the the various parts, and uh, it's done it's done up with sort of flowchart arrows so that you can see <laughs> um, you can see what happens contemporaneously with with what. And also, uh, like, there are some TBA books that are like, you know, this book, this book has been announced. I think as a novelist, it's probably a dangerous game to, to sort of call your shot. <laughs> because, when, <laughs> you know, I don't know, 300 pages is an awfully big commitment. Uh, or, you, or you can be George R. R. Martin and you have like 1,500 pages committed to, you know, <laughs> to the readers. Yeah, 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 yeah. But... Uh, uh, I, and I, I'll just say I can unreservedly recommend both Speaker for the Dead, uh, the immediate sequel, and Ender's Shadow. They're, they're both quite good. Um, some of the other sequels, probably not quite as good in quality, but it, those are worth trying. And if you like them, you can try the, the sequels that follow in their, their footsteps. Um, all right. Yeah. Uh, and, and for what it's worth, we probably won't do one of the sequels as the next <laughs> book club. Uh, just because it's um, just because we'd like to try a wide variety of things and maybe even a different maybe even a different uh, genre. Certainly. So, uh, all right, here we are. Um, you know, here here uh, here we are, totally at the at the end of the book, uh, and we should probably consider its its larger scale. Um, uh, it's larger scale meaning and, and themes. Do you have a place that you wanna uh, you wanna jump in? Uh, sure. Well, let me talk about one thing that I found interesting in Chapter 15 before oh, sure. we move on to the, the whole book here. It's the the different ways that the buggers, that we get communication from the buggers, because that, that's been the big problem throughout this book. And this is probably a good jumping off point for sure. the book. But this has been kind of essential. What we find out is the central problem with our war with the buggers is that we simply can't talk to them. And there's kind of an evolution here, because there's a passage where it talks about how just the artifacts that the buggers left behind communicate with the bugger, communicate with the humans, that from fences with sharpened stakes that pointed outward, he learned that there were marauding animals that were a danger to the crops or the herds. And it goes on. And then there's, then later, of course, we find the giant, which is kind of a, a pure symbolic communication. Well, I, should, I shouldn't say pure symbolic. It's a, just an imagery. It doesn't actually have, like, symbo- the buggers don't know the symbolic value. They just know it means, the image means something to Ender. And then, of course, later there's this mind-to-mind communication. I just found this interesting, the different 
kind of levels of if you don't have words, what are the different what are the ways you can communicate with another another being or another person? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I to, to what extent are the are the you know edifices and um, uh, fortifications communication and and you know I don't know for to to what extent are are they just surmises on Ender's part about. Uh, uh, you know about what the conditions of life would have been like. I mean, what what is required for communication? Is the intention to communicate uh, required uh, for communication, or or do we get communication um, without anyone meaning to communicate to us? That's it's a loaded question. I think that right. the, the answer the book the book gives is is actually the latter uh, because of the way that Ender kind of gets into his. Uh, uh, opponents' heads, and they, they are, without intending to communicate, they are communicating all kinds of stuff about themselves, uh, about their their tactical strengths and weaknesses, uh, about their personalities, um, uh, you know, and you're communicating all kinds of stuff uh, like this without, uh, without wanting to. And that actually has an interesting intellectual pedigree in warfare, because... And here I'm, I'm going back to, to my, my favorite Neil Stevenson here. If you've read Cryptonomicon, you, you know what I'm about to say. Um, the idea of in, in warfare, your actions communicate to the enemy. And there's, there's no avoiding that. That what, if you move your troops from one hill to the other, that's, that's a signal to them. That's a communication to them of, of one thing or another. And in, in World War II, this became very important. The, the field of information theoretics was essentially born because we were trying to hide the fact that we cracked Enigma. And we realize that if we use the information from Enigma too much, it would be as if we were sending a message, sending a letter to the Germans that said, we've cracked Enigma. Because they, if every single German convoy gets hit exactly at the wrong time, they're going to realize something is up. And so that there was com- complicated math done, basically, to figure out how much of this information we can, can we use without revealing the fact that we have the enigma information and sure you're, you're communicating whether you want to or not and if you if you uh if you're a fan of the west wing you know you'll learn that uh sam seaborn's uh uh thesis was um proving the proving the innocence of a spy who turns out to be a russian spy <laughs> because nancy mcnally you know uh as nancy mcnally says if you break someone's code you don't tell them unless you absolutely have to <laughs> But it's really about Sam's dad. Yeah. So just remember. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the episode. Um, uh, it's called Somebody's Going to Emergency, Somebody's Going to Jail, which is a line from the song in New York Minute. Wow. Pulled that one out. Yeah. It's <laughs> a deep so, album cut. Yeah. <laughs> West Wing cut, too. Welcome to the West Wing podcast. Yeah. But back, to, back, to, uh, back to Ender's Game. Um, so I, I guess if we're talking whole book themes, the one thing that I, I think we missed last week, but it comes up again and again, is that the, the teacher is the enemy and the enemy is the teacher. Sure. There's this uh, dichotomy that, that kind of goes both directions, uh, but with, with different implications. So I think that's worth exploring. Well, yeah, we've sort of taught we've sort of talked about we sort of talked about that. I mean, I, I go in a couple different directions of it. One one way. Um, one way is to say that you know uh, uh, that our our sort of our theories about how things ought to go, uh, or our theories about what the world is really like, uh, however sophisticated they are, will not survive an actual encounter with the world, right? <laughs> uh, because because um, the world is just too too strange. Um, in the, the, in, the mil- in the military, the people often repeat the phrase: "The enemy always gets a vote." <laughs> Which, right. Sure. Your, 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 if your plan doesn't take that into account, you're 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 wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah. That that uh, that and and so like if the teacher to say that the teacher is the enemy, um, right? Uh, in that that statement is in some ways misleading because what it's really saying is the teacher is not a whole bunch of other things that you might actually think are the teacher, right? Like books or history necessarily, or uh, you know history viewed in a in a certain light, or um, 
your ideas about yourself and other people, or you know any any kind of abstracted uh, any kind of abstracted system. These things are not the teacher. The teacher is actual enemy. The the is teacher is actually the enemy. The teacher is the conditions, the actual environment, and the circumstances that are really around you. But then there's there's another way of of going with it also, which is that teaching. Uh, uh, and I, I think it's a, a touchier, touchier way of reading it. Uh, teaching is may have some kind of inherently adversarial components uh, to it, right? What's the difference? The, 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 here, let me pose this question just as a, just as kind of a straw man to to get us going. Uh, what's the difference between teaching and helping? Right, because teaching mm. could be very helpful, and and a helper certainly isn't the enemy, right? But but a teacher, uh, the teacher is the enemy, right? So I I think that there's there's something there's something in there uh, about what the book is getting at. That that's interesting, and what she said, and that it goes two ways. I I I like that the, this book kind of has. What's normally this sentence structure, if you say Barack Obama is the president, that has equivalent meaning of the president is Barack Obama. Those two sentences are are pretty much uh, equivalent, logically speaking. But here, the teacher is the enemy doesn't have the same implication or connotation as the enemy is the teacher. Um, And I'll unpack that a bit. The the teacher is the enemy is taking what is normally what normally we think of as an ally, that the teacher is someone that helps you. As you said, it's someone who's supposed to be on your side. But in this book, we have that the teachers are the enemy. The teachers are the one that are tormenting Ender and are the cause of most of his problems. And then the, the flip side of that is kind of the other way around, which is the enemy is supposed to be someone bad that you, you can't get anything from. But in fact, the enemy is the teacher. That you, you need to be taking value out of your relationship with, with the enemy. Right. Um, when when Mazur introduces himself to, uh, to Ender for the first time, he, he says, I am, you know, I am the enemy. Uh, you've never had, you've never had, uh, an enemy. And, you know, it's true that up to that point, you know, even though he's been playing computer games, I guess, and doing stuff, Ender's never really been in, in a situation where he had the possibility of losing. I think of, to go from the West Wing to Star Trek The Next Generation, I think of, um, the Sherlock Holmes holodeck plot and the the crucial uh, thing that Jordy says in one of those episodes he says uh, the the opponent needs to have the ability to beat data rather than have the ability to beat Sherlock Holmes you know <laughs> um, and so uh, the computer well you know uh, hilarity ensues um, or Moriarty ensues I suppose uh, <laughs> so um, you know uh, you've never had you've never had an enemy who was I forget exactly what he says smarter than you or ca- as capable as you or capable of, of beating you certainly not in, in battle school um, you know and that's borne out uh, that's borne out by uh, Dragon Army's experience um, uh, in in battle school, there's there's no one there who really is capable of of beating him, and uh, and you get the sense that sort of you you get the sense that yeah uh, you get the sense that um, Mazur is kind of the first person for Ender who 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 kind of plays on his level, right? Right, and if, but of course it's interesting because this is. A, a bit of a canard because Mazer is not actually the one that Ender will be facing from here on out. Uh, that Mazer, this little speech is really just to get Ender in the mindset of, oh, I'm going up against somebody really, really smart, this brilliant commander, but, and not catch on to the fact that the brilliant commander he's facing is actually the buggers. Right. So I, so maybe it's just necessary for Mazer to set himself up in this way so that Ender has the, the kind of proper mindset of, I'm facing an enemy without knowing that he's fa- actually facing the buggers. Right. Um, you know, it, it also strikes me there's another sort of crossover uh, here. An enemy is, is a peer, right? You, you, when you say or when you mutually say, uh, you are my enemy, uh, you're, in that adversarial relationship, you're, you're uh, establishing that you are peers insofar as you are adversaries, right? Um, a teacher-student right. relationship isn't a peer, uh, isn't a peer relationship. It's a uh, it's a relationship of sort of unequal power or unequal knowledge 
Um, and so to say that uh, you know to say that the teacher is the, is the enemy, you're not only sort of crossing over boundaries of of um, you know uh, uh, helping versus uh, helping versus antagonizing, but also um, uh, also crossing over boundaries of uh, peer versus superior or inferior, right? Right. Yeah. That that that's true. I hadn't thought of in that light that the the there is this that different power relationship between the two. Um, yeah. Uh, so you know the the teacher the teacher is the enemy and and also like um, uh, then there's then this this has maybe a third implication right which is that uh, the teacher is the enemy the other armies in the battle room the other students in battle school aren't the enemy right. Um, and it's it's an interesting it's an interesting thing. I mean, Ender Ender kind of comes to realize that battle school students are operating with a, a certain amount of false consciousness about the power relationships that that are actually that are actually in play. Um, they're not sort of antagonized by one another. They're antagonized by uh, by the teachers. And I mean, they're not really antagonized. They're being sort of trained and, and prepared. And though it may be rigorous, there's a justification for it at least. Um, you know, so, um, the, so the, the, (laughs) the teacher is the enemy is, is a way of saying maybe, um, uh, you have to be flexible and read circumstances, read the actual circumstances of any situation, uh, a way of saying maybe there's something adversarial, um, in the uh, maybe there's something adversarial, and that and there's something uh, kind of oddly, oddly equal uh, in the in a pedagogical relationship. But it's 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 also to say that the teachers are the enemy is to say that you know the the other students aren't. Uh, uh, aren't the enemy, right? Like my, my first point was what, what things aren't the teacher <laughs> now is <laughs> what, what things aren't, uh, what things aren't the enemy and your, your team, your, your cohort, uh, aren't the enemy. In fact, the teachers aren't the enemy. The buggers are the enemy. And in fact, the buggers aren't the enemy at all. Cause they're not coming for us. You know, we're, uh, we're coming for them. And, and it turns out that they're just, uh, all those, um, all those battles, uh, they're just uh, uh, fighting a, a sort of defensive war. They're right. They're they're defending their many colony worlds or or what have you. Um, you know, that, so, yeah, right. And that's uh, that's actually a good pivot to, I think, the, another thing we'd want to talk about, which is the idea of games having rules and at what level of kind of abstraction do we want to define the rules of the game uh, yeah. because the, the by, and I, the reason I make that connection is what you're saying about how the students aren't the enemy or the teachers aren't the end the, the, the other students aren't the enemy the teachers are this is a problem that that most of the other students don't see that because they're looking at this level of abstraction of the the battle school kind of quay the battle school they're not looking outside the, the bounds of the game so they only see the other students as their enemies yeah I mean, I think that's right. It's something that we've talked about before, the idea that you can kind of draw a circle. Uh, it, it's an, You'll recall my old high school physics teacher used to say, no, draw a circle around the car. Now those are all internal forces, and you can just uh, – <laughs> it's just MG down, baby. Um, the uh, – you know, uh, we've talked about sort of drawing the circle around certain – uh, uh, certain elements in the circumstances, and uh, you can look at you can look at the game or games that are being played at that level of um, at that level of abstraction. And we talked about a little bit Ender being very good at at the battle room game, but not so good at the you know um, uh, get buddies game. Though very good, <laughs> very good at the get followers game. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, uh, 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 one of the points, uh, that was made in, in, um, in the Orson Scott Card interviews in Ender's World, the, the, uh, companion volume of essays, um, is that, uh, you know, is that, um, <laughs> the, uh, the pilots, the actual pilots who are executing the the orders given by Ender and his 
commanders, his sub-commanders, um, have been watching Ender's progress the whole time, right? Like, that is to say, they're, they're only willing to go on this suicide mission uh, because they have reasonable trust that it will be successful because they've seen the amazing things uh, that Ender has done so far, to the, even to the point of, like, getting the blow-by-blow of the other, the wars at the other bugger strongholds uh, as Ender one-by-one, one, you know, one-by-one uh, one defeats them. Um, and this this uh, this question of sort of establishing trust versus uh, versus making friends. This idea of kind of like what it means to be a leader and what it means to be a peer or a brother or a friend, um, like is it strikes me as a theme of the whole book. That that um, you know talking about leadership and talking about. Uh, uh, talking about the the qualities of a good leader, I'm not sure we need to do much on it now because we have teased that out a lot uh, in in previous podcasts. But if we're you know cataloging the themes of the whole book, um, that's definitely one. Sure, and I think that's uh, it's an example we haven't necessarily talked directly on, but that's an example where there is no ex- there is no substitute for competence. That at a certain point you can read all the little airport uh, airport leadership books you want. People aren't going to be willing to drive their spaceship into a planet for you unless they think you're really really good at your job. Right. <laughs> and there, there's no there's no getting around that with with fancy tactics. You just have to be good at your job at that point. And that's the only way that Ender is able to get that level of of followership. Right. There's I mean there's a body of research now about uh, that is you know uh, currently being developed about motivation and one of the things um uh one of the things uh that is important um uh, so, uh this body of research claims for people to be motivated in their jobs or or uh, whatnot is is the sense that they that their work is consequential, right? That it actually is is achieving a goal that they that they think of is worthwhile, and so and that their effort, uh, that their participation in this this uh, goal um, is worthwhile. It's why we're so you know averse to busy work, um, and it's re- it's related. I mean, I suppose it's a th- there's a body of like. Um, behavioral like economics research and and sort of neurological research and stuff like this is that's uh that is current at the moment but it goes back intellectually probably a long long way and at least to to victor frankel and man's search for meaning and his uh his um uh practice of of what he called logotherapy the idea of sort of finding finding you know meaning uh in your life and especially meaning in your suffering uh given his uh life experience um, but then, okay, so if, if we're all if we're all driving our spaceships into planets, you know, if we're all, uh, uh, you know, declaring war on on the buggers, um, then let's let's uh, get into a little bit the idea of Ender's Game as as a critique. Uh, what is the what is the blurb on your on oh. your paperback books jacket uh, say? A critique of the military mindset or of the martial s- mindset or something. A scathing indictment of the military mind. What do you think? What, what do you think of that? Um, what do you think of that uh, as a um, as a claim about Ender's Game? It's it's half true, like, like everything. Of yeah, course. yeah, it's true in a way, and I think the sense that it is true. I don't know if this is the spirit that it was in which it was written, but I think this, in the sense that it is true, is it's a bit of an indictment of the. Uh, a man with a hammer sees only nails mindset of the military, um, which is certainly true to some extent that the the tendency, if you have a bunch of cruise missiles, is to find something that you can use cruise missiles against because it's a problem that you can solve or at least a problem that you can feel like you've solved, uh, whereas some problems are simply difficult and intractable and you, you don't have necessarily a tool at your disposal that's going to make this problem easy to solve. Sure. Um, and, and so it's possible that, that in that sense, that because because the big reveal at the end is, of course, that we didn't need to be fighting this war all along, that, that there, there were other factors at play, but we, the military mindset kind of took over, that the, the idea of fighting this war at all costs took over. And then that might actually have more to say about how we use the concept of war in other fields than I think it might have to, to say about the armed forces per se. And I'm thinking here of like the war on poverty or the war on drugs or pick your war on 
uh, I think that that might have to do with that kind of military mindset. Right. Yeah. Or uh, sure. The idea that <laughs> the idea that military thinking or military problem solving can be kind of metaphorically applied, uh, right? Rather uh, <laughs> to things that aren't actually military uh, military problems. Right, like that. Well, I talked about airport leaderships books, like those. You know, how to apply Sun Tzu's art of war in your business, or something like that. Yeah, the the forty nine laws of power, or something. You right. know what I mean? Like, uh, why don't but, I mean? Why don't airports just get better books? You know, I mean, it seems like <laughs> they come in for so much hate for having such terrible bookstores. Why? Why don't they just get better? It's not hard to find good books. I mean, you know, people have been writing for thousands of years. Let's. Uh, Get some good books up there. Anyway, I, I digress. <laughs> I think that that says more about the average airport customer than it does the uh, the average airport book proprietor. Ah, oh, zing. <laughs> um, but yeah. uh, when I said and when I said half right, so I might as well say why it's half wrong is because it's this is clearly not a book that is aimed at demonizing the military man, the the military person per se. Um, it's, it's very sympathetic to the the cause of the person that would choose to join the military or choose to, to fight on behalf of the, on behalf of others. Sure. And even of, even of, it turns out here to be faulty, uh, even of commanders like, like Graf who, who feel like they are not, or they should not be beholden to, you know, the civilian leadership, which is supposed to direct the efforts of the military because he just knows better. Right. And that, um, that, uh, uh, it's, he, he's borne out by the book, right? Because what he says turns out to be true. Uh, what he does, you know, gives Ender the ability to to uh, win the war. Um, uh, never mind. I mean, even bracketing for a second the idea that it's a war of aggression, and I want to return to that, uh, uh, though nobody knows that um, at the time, right? Like, or, or Ender doesn't know it, uh, rather. Um, he does he does get under ready and i mean uh, for you know uh just sort of without considering how uh, the goals how the missions are are set um given that there is this mission given that it exists right like uh he gets under he gets under ready for it and a bunch of meddling congressmen aren't gonna tell him how to do his job right <laughs> Right, and the the cost that he's willing to bear is is worth it in that in that calculus. So assuming that this war is worth fighting, then yeah, these meddling congressmen do need to get out of his way, or at least that's the the, the argument that's put forth that they in the war that's worth fighting. There's there's not room to you have to stand aside for the the competent individuals, or at least that's Graf's argument. But when, yeah, and you have to you have to recognize their you have to sort of recognize their special expertise. And again, yeah. in in Ender's world, which we've given away a, a copy of on overthinking it, um, in his interviews, Orson Scott Card talks about um, uh, you know talks about uh, peacetime, what happens to to militaries in in. Uh, in peacetime, and uh, and he and he makes the claim, um, which I'm sure historians could debate, uh, that um, that the uh, the the sidelining of the real the real war fighters in peacetime um, actually makes wars worse when they come along. Uh, you know, because um, if you have a bunch of sort of peacetime bureaucrats uh, in charge, they can't. Uh, I'm simplifying the argument, but they can't nip problems in the bud, or they can't recognize they can't recognize true threats when when they emerge. Yeah, and this I mean, this is of course something that th- there's definitely is a healthy historical debate about that because there's a, a way of looking at you know particular build up to World War II where it took a while to find the, the right people. But then again, some of the right people were there all along, the, particularly the logistical masters of World War II, the, your George C. Marshall, your Dwight Eisenhower. They, they were picked right at the beginning, and they, it, they was born out. They, they made good decisions in a broad strategic sense. So I'm not sure it's 100% born out. Uh, but there is certainly true that in peacetime and even in wartime behind enemy lines, oftentimes the wrong things get get picked as the way people get promoted. Sure. Um, 
Yeah. So, so where the the indictment of the the military mind comes in for me, or the the, the what shall we say, the sort of the the military sensibility um, comes in for me is is in uh, in the fact that the 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 formics weren't they weren't coming back, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not. Uh, 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 they're they're just they're staying on their their own world. So you know it turns out, um, and and uh, and the the preemptive war, you know, uh, get them before they can get us. Argument doesn't really stand up once you know that. Well, no, they they really weren't um, they really weren't coming to get us. Now the the, the answer that the book gives, um, and I think kind of undercuts. It a little bit, or the, the answer that the the people of Graf's mindset give, uh, and I think the book undercuts this just a bit, is well, we can't know, so we have to assume uh, we have to assume that they're hostile. If if the other fellow can't tell you a story, how can you can never know he's not he's not trying to kill you, right? And and the the idea that the default assumption is trying to kill you, rather than you know I don't know if if the other fellow can't tell you his story uh you can never know he's not trying to tickle your feet you know <laughs> or um or whatever i mean like kill you is not the only option right that's not the only sort of thing or the default thing that people do uh when they get together you know um so and, let me let, let me play graf's uh, defense attorney no, no, here sure, absolutely. Since, since he, he did go on trial here uh, even though I, I, I agree with you that, that ultimately the book is, is not 100% sympathetic to this position, but I'll, I'll, I'll put on the defense attorney cap here. Uh, I mean, they have attacked us twice. Not just once, but twice. The, there was the, and I don't know how much of this is getting in the book, but there was a first invasion that was just barely fought off, and then a much larger second invasion. And in both cases, there was just mass slaughter of humans. There was no mercy whatsoever. There was no attempts at communication, no attempts at... Uh, peacemaking whatsoever on the part of the buggers. So the the assumption on the part of humans that buggers are going to kill you the instant they see you is not exactly without evidence. Sure. That I I mean that's fair enough. Um and and we learn I mean we learn that um <laughs> Right, that the the buggers. We learned though later that the buggers were just well-intentioned colonists. You know, they're bringing <laughs> civilization to this this part of the universe. I mean, these these humans are no no better than cows, really. I mean, they don't like meet meep with their antenna to one another and suddenly know everything the other guy. You know, they don't think with a single mind and act with a single agency and and uh, adjust instantaneously to uh, to one another. I mean, that can barely be called uh, uh, that can barely be called. Um, a mammal, much less an intelligent mammal, right? Like exactly. Um, so this, this, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. I, so it's it's true. I mean, that the, the I think one of the strengths of the book is that it doesn't it doesn't necessarily come down on on a side. It doesn't sort of, but it does. It sort of does dramatize the the as you say the sort of intractable conflict um, of this, but which is that like in. In, in the absence of information or, or with, you know, with only the information you have, in the absence of complete uh, information, um, how, you know, how should we, how should we act? I mean, how should we behave in that, in, in those situations? Sure. And I think the, the, the conflict here that, that it's really getting at, and in particular, this is cheating a little bit because this is particularly explored in Speaker for the Dead. Because this is very much, it turns out, the, the kind of philosophy of the, the speaker for the dead religion it, is the difference between kind of intentional-based morality and act-based morality. Uh, so I, to what extent do we care that you were well-intentioned when your action had a bad result? Mm-hmm. And, and, of course, different moral systems are going to answer that question very differently. And Ender's Game is kind of a, it, it's almost a fitly philosophical hypothetical of would it be immoral to commit genocide if you didn't know you were doing it yeah um i mean that that's really the question that's being posed here uh and of course there's no easy answer ender ender knows that he, he's in that situation and he can't decide how he feels about it himself right he's um 
Sure. And also, I mean, like, if you didn't know you were, if you didn't know you were doing it, well, of course, I mean, it must be immoral for someone, right? Like, right. At, <laughs> at what, at what level? I mean, and this is, this is also maybe another sort of indictment of the military mindset. Like, how, how far out can you abstract responsibility so that no one is responsible for anything, right? Um, you know, sure, and this comes up a lot in in the military context, as you say, where you, you've got a lot of people. You can point you you can point the finger at everybody, and so as a result, nobody gets the finger pointed at them. Sure, um, yeah, because at a, at a I mean at a certain level, it's it's actually sort of a genius of the the framing of the American political system that you do you do in an elected president you you get single point accountability or at least you're supposed to <laughs> whether right. or not it it works out that way in point of fact in every the, instance the the other genius of the american political system is the one highlighted by uh, the south park episode which is because we have about 50% of the population that's going to uh, support the war and 50% that's going to oppose it we we can still defend ourselves without looking like uh you know, we love without without saying we're war without people, other people being able to claim we're warmongers at the same time. Sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, that we're warmongers. We're warmongers on the whole. Uh, well, um, we're coming uh, up to the uh, to the end of our hour here. You wanna? You have a last? Um, uh, you have a last theme or last observation that you want to take us out on? Since you're the uh, the world's foremost expert. That's that's a lot of pressure. I guess the biggest theme or question, I, the, the the question that I think is interesting that gets explored a lot in this book is is what it is to know someone or what it is to know another person. Uh, you know, I, since this is kind of just after the seventies area of sci-fi, I can't help but think of the word grok. You know, what is it to grok another being? <laughs> yeah, sure. And that that's kind of the the conflict we're getting at here. That because it's that the buggers can't know us and we can't know them. And to a lesser extent, we have that humans can't really know each other, that, that even Ender, this master of empathy, doesn't really know what it's like to be not Ender, to be, to be in the mind of somebody else. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, every human being is uh, uh, like a... What is it? A, who is it? Dickens, right? Every human being is a profound secret... Uh, to to his neighbors, um, or something uh, something like that. Let's see if my friend Wikipedia, <laughs> uh, my friend Wikipedia can uh, help me. A wonderful f- fact to reflect upon uh, that every human creature is constituted to be that profound secret and mystery uh, to every to every other um, from a, a novel of Dickens. Right, like you can't. Uh, you can't sort of get that. I mean, to what extent in Ender's game is self-knowledge possible, right? I mean, maybe it's possible for Ender, but but he's a special case. For the rest of us, like, we sort of think we know ourselves and we think we know our intentions, or rather we think that our, our actions comport with our intentions. But in fact, um, for Ender, our actions reveal... Uh, uh, you know, desires and patterns and weaknesses that that to us are are still still hidden. So not only, uh, you know, not only is there a big uh, difficult problem of getting to know other people, but there's a big difficult problem of getting to know ourselves, um, getting to know ourselves as well. And you actually even in the the uh, preludes to each chapter where Graf or whoever. Um, He's talking. There's a lot of like, leave me alone. Don't psychoanalyze me, right? Like that <laughs> uh, in in that thing. Like, well, why do you do it? Don't ask me why I do it. I'm just doing it. You know. Um, there's a lot of that, like, sort of refusal to to uh, a sort of refusal to go beneath uh, to go beneath the surface and to sort of interrogate one's own uh, interrogate one's own motives. Certainly, and that's something that uh, the, the later books get into to a great deal. And I, that, that's well observed that these these little monologues have that effect. Of, it's kind of almost an alienating effect since they're kind of disembodied from their speakers. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Apparently, uh, this is this I also learned from Ender's World, the the volume of essays. Um, one of Orson Scott Card's rules at his fiction seminars that he teaches periodically is uh, don't don't start a work with unattributed dialogue. <laughs> 
<laughs> I guess that's a, uh, a an English teacher told me once that you have to know all the, you have to know the rules just so that you know when to break them. Right. So that's uh, <laughs> uh, so. Um, let's uh, let's uh, leave it there. I'm not sure we're breaking a rule by doing it, but uh, it's been wonderful. Thank you very much, Ben, for going on this uh, this long uh, interstellar flight at relativistic speeds uh, with me. I'm very glad to have had an uh, expert navigator and commander such as you to um, to head the expedition. Well, thank you, Matt. I'm, I'm always up for uh, talking about Ender's Game. <laughs> no doubt. Um, if you want to join the conversation, you can jump into the uh, forums at overthinkingit.com slash forums. Uh, find the Ender's Game forum and find the whole book forum. And we can, um, I, I suppose it was a little silly to have a separate uh, chapter 15 forum and whole book forum because chapter 15 covers the whole book. I mean, that is... That is the end of the book. We'll probably organize the forums a little differently uh, the next time we do this. Um, so uh, jump into the whole book and add your uh, perspective on anything we've said or anything that you would like uh, to talk about. You can start your own forum topic uh, there because there just hasn't been time, even in these six-hour-long uh, podcasts, to get into everything, um, even everything that we would like to talk about uh, about Ender's Game. And so we'll keep those open for a few weeks more. Uh, also, um, though we haven't gone into it that much because uh, we want these to be evergreen and to remain useful to anyone uh, who is reading Ender's Game, uh, however far in the future from now, uh, whether you're traveling on a spaceship at relativistic speeds to uh, go find <laughs> a new uh, home for the Hive Queen, or uh, whether it's 2014 or something, however far in the future it is. Um, uh, despite that, uh, it just so happens that part of the impetus to do this was uh, that the Ender's, uh, the Ender's Game film adaptation uh, is coming out uh, next week as we record this. So uh, you'll find more about that uh, if you want to uh, on the, uh, the main Overthinking It podcast. And uh, let's uh, use the forums as a way to really expand on the discussion about... Uh, about the film, about the adaptation, about, uh, you know, the things that disappoint us. I'm sure uh, we will be disappointed a little <laughs> bit. But then but then also there may be some things that, that are, in fact, uh, uh, very interesting and, and very on point. So, you know, let's not, let's not prejudge. Let's go with an open mind and let's talk about uh, the film in the forums as well. And whatever you want to talk about, uh, you're welcome to uh, come do it at overthinkingit.com because that is where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve, deserve.